All righty. Uh, we'll see how we do today. Um, those of you who have been to the meeting before know that this is kind of a freewheeling uh, discussion. It's interesting, as I put it together over the years, a lot of the questions of the cases remain the same, but the answers are different. They really have changed. So that's kind of fun. Um, so on our panel today, starting at the far end, is Dr. Lennox, who everybody, who everybody knows um, from earlier. Then we have Dr. Geffert and Dr. Tiffany Walker is there. For, she'll be talking to us later about um, long COVID. Uh, Carlos De Rio, a lot of you know, who's now the interim dean at Emory and having a great time. <laughs> wonderful time being a super administrator. Um, we have Meredith Clement, who's here from LSU and Nolens. Got to say that right? Yeah, you're right. And Dr. Iran. So here we go. Um, and Dr. Gepford, did I mention you? Yes, I think I did. Okay, here we go. So all these folks, I've uh, been a consultant for two companies you probably never have heard of. Um, so there we are. And we're going to talk about antiretroviral therapy and weight gain and pregnancy and abacavir and STI treatment strategies. We'll hear an awful lot about later. Um, and then uh, strategies for those who have MPOX or COVID. So standard question a 48-year-old guy, just recently diagnosed, the viral load's 280,000, CD4 count 65. Labs are normal, genotype is wild type. Of course, you may not know that up front, but for the purposes of this discussion, you know that. Uh, negative uh, medical history, normal renal function. So in this setting, I'll let you look this over. We've got a lot of, um, a lot of concepts here. Um, we'll open up the clock and play a little music that might be different than before, or maybe the same. We'll see. And uh, go ahead and vote. Music has improved. It's improved. I can't hear it, though. In the Heights? I think so, yeah. Here we go. All right, so um, the one we use the most, it seems, is uh, this fixed-dose combination with Bictegravir. Uh, some folks went right to Ditegravir 3TC, some direct to inject without the lead-in, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say there's a lead-in. Uh, some folks still going with Abacavir, and uh, let's hear from the panel, uh, Dr. Del Rio. Uh, what is the you know, dean's I, office vote? I, 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 I agree with the with the audience. I think that you know a single pill combination with an integrase inhibitor like Bictegravir plus TAF FTC. It's a, it's a wonderful initial choice, and I think it's probably the preferred choice. I think if you had, you know, you can go the same way with Dalutegravir, but if you're adding, you know, the single dose comes with a bacavir, right? So you need to know the HLA status on that individual. So if you're going to do Dalutegravir with with you know TAF FTC or or something like that, then you're talking about two pills. And you know if you were globally, that would be the first option because that comes as a mm -hmm. single pill, but not in our country. So I think you're 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 back to, you know, simplicity is the is 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 king. And I think the you know as we have learned over and over, 
simplify your regimen and your adherence will go up and your, your people will take their drugs. So I think the big take of your option is the best option at this point in time. Okay, good. Anybody want to support some of the other options here for equity and inclusion? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that, that um, you know there isn't resistance um, in this particular setting. So, so Dalyatek or 3TC would be reasonable, but the guidelines, both ISUSA and um, the um, uh, DHHS, but especially ISUSA, warn, have, have concerns about low CD4, not because it won't work, but because there's very limited data in right. that setting. Um, but, but I think that, that it's not an unreasonable choice. That means um, it's reasonable. Right, means it's a reasonable choice. <laughs> I, I think it's a reasonable choice. Thank you. See, the problem with words is that they have meaning. That's a that's sure. a big deal. Sure. And to me, not unreasonable is not the same as reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. Okay. Well, that's reasonable. <laughs> I think. Okay, Meredith, uh, do you have a thought other than what we've heard? I agree. I mean, I think Dalutegravir is a second generation, and you know, uh, Insti is also reasonable choice. Um, and for, for some patients, because of insurance reasons, we have had to do either TAF, FTC, or, TAF, uh, or TDF, FTC with dolutegravir. But again, for the reasons Dr. Del Rio mentioned, with two tablets versus one, it, I think it's not as desirable. Yeah. Um, but I, I would feel just as comfortable, um, you know, from the standpoint of having a, a second-generation uh, NSTE on board. So if we pull back to the 50,000-foot view, we've got remarkable choices. Right. I mean, most any one of these, there's some recent data at the Croy on Dalutegravir, Darunavir that worked, and the real say, well, why wouldn't it? Well, remember back when Raltegravir was released, Raltegravir, Darunavir boosted did not work that well for reasons I still can't quite understand, except perhaps it was just not enough oomph from the Raltegravir, but with uh, the data f at the at the Croy showed that Darunavir boosted with Dalutegravir was a reasonable option as well. Yeah, the one thing, the one thing, the one thing I would add—they're all reasonable choices as you mentioned. But you know, using you know ritonavir boosting, using cobistat boosting—I mean, because of the drug-drug interactions, yeah. try to avoid those regimens. Yeah. So that becomes unreasonable. Yeah, exactly. I see. Okay. <laughs> and we mentioned the guidelines. So now we're going to go back to the future, and we're going to go forward to the future, like in. Back to the Future Part 3, or 4, or 2, 2. Um, we're going to go three years from now, and this is going to pick playoff, riff off of Dr. Iran's. Uh, so that, just to remind you who the case is here, it's on the right. And then here are some choices that are a little different, um, including Islatravir Duravirine that you heard about, and Islatravir Linacapavir, and Borrelia neutralizing antibodies. It's amazing how the choices mirror pretty well, what Dr. Iran suggested, I don't know how that happened. And then um, implantable, we didn't talk about that much, but could you get an implant that might be good for six months or a year? Assuming the toxicity isn't there, wouldn't that be cool? You just put it in and forget about it until six months later. All right, go ahead and vote. We were talking about Hamilton last night, and there are some people who haven't seen it yet. Okay, and we will go to Dr. Walker for just 
general principles uh, because of Hamilton. Um, what do you think of this, just having heard about all this? Uh, uh, she's um, internal medicine trained, but has done a lot of work in ID, was an EIS officer. So what do you think as you look at these choices? Yeah, I mean, again, I think there are a lot of uh, good options that can be chosen. I think trying to target medications that really um, uh, speak to the patient in terms of retention, being able to maintain a regimen, choosing uh, a regimen that would be um, uh, something that works with their quality of life, I think would be most important. Yeah. Dr. Gepfert, thoughts on just assuming they all worked and there was no, no I mean, I reasonable difference in toxicity. Dr. Walker gave the answer. Yeah. I mean, I, it's personalized again, right? It depends yeah. on your, the person you have in front of you and what is preference for that. I will say that in our clinic, a lot of people are really wanting the injections now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, would say, I would say, you know, in the injectables, and I would love the idea of the, of the BNAPs, Q6 months. I, my, only, my only thing that I would say in any of those is, we're gonna have to reinvent how we do our clinics, right? We're gonna have to reinvent how we deliver care. And right now we're having patients that we say, well, we need to see you every six months and some maybe even every year because they're doing great. They, yeah. they, we mail their meds, they're doing fine, we don't see them. And now we're gonna have to say, well, now, you, now we need to see you every eight weeks or now we need to see you. And that changes the whole situation. Right, and then cost, we didn't talk about that, but broadly neutralizing antibodies are likely to be pricey. We look at the cost of ibolizumab, which when you need it, you need it, and, but it's about 120K a year. So. Um, Meredith, what do you think? Yeah, I, I was going to agree with Dr. Del Rio about the, I think the implementation hurdles are substantial, but um, like Dr. Scott and I were actually just talking about during Dr. Eron's talk is that I, I think we as providers underestimate the, the toll, the burden that daily pills take on our patients. It's just a constant reminder of that you're living with HIV and the stigma that surrounds it. Sure. And I, I, I just think it's going to really remarkably improve quality of life when we can get to every six months. Mm -hmm. for Mike, I think Dr. For, Linux, al yes. along those lines for the, I'm a big fan of the implantable, yeah. you know, because we've seen how successful it is, you know, for pro, you know, prophylaxis against pregnancy, if you want to put it in medical terms. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that pre-pregnancy prophylaxis? Yeah. <laughs> Prior act. So, um, you know, maybe it's lenacapavir because the dosage delivery will be lower on average than the oral. Um, and if not, you know, I think an implantable dual therapy could be a game yeah. changer for a significant proportion of our patients. I gotta say, as I wrote the question, I was saying, wouldn't it be cool if we could just have somebody come by once every 12 months? It's, it'd be a small uh, procedure, but probably no worse than the draining of uh, uh, MRSA fur uncle that we do in clinic all the time, right? How many have done that? Just a few? Wow, we did all the time. Okay, but it wouldn't be that big a deal. So let's, for the interest of time, um, see what we do. So this is, this is our post-exposure uh, answer here. And okay, a lot of people just stay the course, change wouldn't be prudent. But I love the people who picked uh, answer 13%, that's me. Yeah. Right. If we had a virtual hybrid meeting, I would repeat the question 
for the people at home, but there's nobody at home. So, um, <laughs> so the question is, what about generics? We might as well pause on that. Do you, do you guys have a feeling about, we have some generics now. I mean, our hand may be played by the insurance providers. Right. They may tell us what to do. I mean, when you think that for TDL, PEPFAR pays less than a dollar a day. Yeah. Then you can get, I mean, you can, we can get the price of therapy in this country down to less than a dollar a day. I think that's going to be the, the option, right? I mean, clearly we pay too much for our drugs in this country. And, and that is a major limitation. And that, I think, limits the options that you cannot do personalized medicine when you have costs really being the driver. No, that's a good point. The one thing that's interfered with some prescri prescribing of generics is that if there's more than one tablet, then there's copay issues. And patients will complain about that. So we got a, we got some equilibrium to do here before we get to this. So a common question in practice, should I simplify an initial regimen? It's basically the same guy who showed up, but he got started on Dalutegravir TAF FTC by the 1% of you who voted for that. Um, but he's doing well. He's a happy guy. And his viral load suppressed, and his CD4 count has had a raging... Uh, uptick, uh, and now your question is, do you want to change the regimen or change it to Dalutegravir 3TC to simplify it, and that becomes a single tablet regimen, uh, start an injectable with every eight weeks, and uh, or some other kind of choice. Go ahead and vote. This is in honor of all the people that vote for cabotegravir. <laughs> yeah. So those people who have seen Hamilton know this song, and those who don't, don't. Um, so let's see what we got here. So a lot of George Herbert Walker Bush folks, not gonna debt, not gonna debt. Change wouldn't be prudent, but let's turn to our panel. Um, yeah, Dr. Iran. Yeah, so, so I, I think all of us as providers are really are, what we should be doing is um, getting people on a therapy that's the simplest, safest, safest therapy that fits into their life. Mm -hmm. and, and we need to ask them, right? Maybe we don't, I don't want an IM injectable every two months in my backside. I don't, but, but they may. And for all the reasons that, that Sandy and, and um, um, Meredith were, were, were talking about. And, and if you, there, there isn't a more successful study than the Gemini study, which was switching from you know, three drugs to uh, Dalyotegavir 3TC. I mean, they, there was one failure over like three years in that, in that switch. So, so I, I mean, you may be comfortable, and the patient may be more comfortable being on three drugs, but, but you, I think we need to ask people what they want. So yeah. um, the ultimate, what happens may be what most people pick, but I think we just have to make sure that we talk to people and let them know that they have options um, and, okay. and then help them make a decision. It's not an emergency, so that's good. Um, so anyway. All right, so let me ask a real-world question from one of our audience members to me by text three days ago, and the story is the patient had been on a, uh, let's say, BIC-TAF-FTC, but the renal 
function is going a little bit south and wanted to know about switching to dalutegravir 3TC. However, way back when, uh, there was an M184V, and what about the use of dalutegravir in a fully suppressed patient for the last four years going to dalutegravir 3TC with a hint of a M184V in the past? I mean, I worry less about the M184V. I worry more about asking whether this patient has history of hepatitis B. Okay, so assume hepatitis B is negative, and... Um, I, I, I would be fine with that. Yeah, so I think it's kind of in a gray zone. Um, there's clearly, you don't want to start with this drug, uh, that regimen, if there's sure enough present. The other question is, let me make it a little bit more complicated. Let's say the patient didn't have a baseline genotype, or at least not one that you can access, and you run a DNA resistance assay, what does that do to your thinking? Uh, and is an M184V in the DNA five years after initiation and success? Dr. Gepfert, you're the genotype expert in the group here. Yeah, you're asking me. Yeah, I'm asking. You. <laughs> so this is like you talking to so me. So there's this a couple. Taxi driver, I think there are Robert a couple issues. One is, you know, there is. So if they have an M184V, there is a potential that they could have some resistance. Although I think it's low, but we have so many drugs. Why would you run that potential? That's in my mm -hmm. mind. Yeah. If it's an archived virus, though, it's possible that it was. It's it's archived into some non-replicating part, which is the majority of viruses, but there's still a risk. So yeah. I, it depends, you know, I, I'm not, there's so many drug regimens, why, in my mind, why would you do that? It, and it's possible you could just give them dolutegravir, frankly, right. and with undetectable virus, and it could work. But so you could do something more straightforward, like dolutegravir rolpivirine, which is a single tablet regimen. Uh, you might think about whether hepatitis B, if it's present, you may want to cover it, you may not, but it's a little different than giving 3TC in the setting of hepatitis B, but assume that's negative. That might be a reasonable choice or a little bit less risky, even though the risk, we don't really know what it is, or probably if you treated 100 people this way, I'm guessing two might fail, have a failing regimen, but then if they fail and you worry about the dietegravir resistance, you could have done something else. So I think your point's well taken. All right, so weight gain. Um, uh, I've always quipped that ever since integrase inhibitors hit the market, I've gained weight as I write <laughs> prescriptions for integrase inhibitors. I think maybe that's happened to other people. But for patients, this is a fairly straightforward common yeah. phenomenon. This is a 47-year-old woman who started BICTAF FTC, had very low viral load, high CD4 count, did well. But now, um, 12 months later, her weight has gone from 145 to 171, which bothers her. And she's asking you, what do I do? So your options are yell at her um, and then keep her on her current regimen, switch her to any one of these other variables here. I'll let you look it over. But some of them are TAF-based, some of them are TDA, TDF, some of them have deraverine, some boosted darunavir, uh, some without any nucleosides at all, but continue, et cetera. Go ahead and vote, and let's see what our music does. Whoops, 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 whoops. <laughs> nope, nope, now votes. The fast voters. 
Oh. Dear Evan Hansen. This is the best song in the play, by the way. When they do the little dance at the end. Even in the movie, it's done pretty well, but on stage, it's fabulous. The most amazing trees. So you'll be amazed at my forest expertise. Um, so again, well, fewer people, most people would try a switch. That's interesting. That's different than a year ago. What's new? Dr. Lennox, you have any thoughts on what you do here? Um, obviously, this is very controversial, which is why you see a fairly good spread here. And, you know, part of the issue is that we have cohorts and trials where people are switched from the regimens like this and know that they're being switched and have an expectation that they may see improvement. And then if there is improvement, you know, we don't know if it's due to the fact that they started dieting and exercising. You know, the, to really answer the question, you'd need a randomized, blinded study of people who'd gained weight and agreed to continue on a regimen that they believe is causing them to gain weight, mm -hmm. which is also not very feasible to get yeah. a definitive trial. So I think that, to me, the data that looks most convincing is that there's something about TDF and efavirenz when used in combination that causes you to gain less weight than our other commonly used options. And that's probably some effect on appetite, in my opinion, based on the data I've seen of tdf efavirenz combinations. Um, and I think that that's a special regimen compared to the others, yeah. in, from what I've seen. So the punchline here is we don't know. There were some data, which, which is important when you come to a meeting like this, because you expect to get updated, and the update is, eh, I don't know. But, but I was that's kind but of I good say, to know. But I would say, Mike, that we, there is an ACTG study, the DO-IT study. Right. And we're trying to answer this question, but it's been hard to enroll into that study because people, you know, the regimens are not that simple. But the DO-IT study is exactly designed to try to answer this question. So we'd have to blind it, uh, double blind it, to really get it yeah. what's what, I think. But there were some data at Croy, some new data that showed that maybe TAF is a little bit more associated with this, and maybe if you get them off of TAF, that could help, but it wasn't knock-your-socks-off data. Uh, Joe, you didn't like no, it? No, 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 no. The, the solar study where people were, everybody was on BF-TAF, yeah. and half of them switched to cabotegravirpivirine, no change in weight. Right. They yeah. all went off TAF. You, you want this woman you to lose two to four pounds? Switch her to TDF. I pretty much guarantee that's what'll happen. But but um, that that's what'll happen. She'll she'll lose two kilograms. Uh, and and yeah. those are the studies where you switch off TAF to TDF, you right. lose weight. You switch off TDF to TAF, you gain weight. Um, but um, that the, the solar study people didn't notice that. But there's everybody stopped TAF and mm -hmm. that one arm, and there was no change in weight. So, Dr. Walker, you are a, you're an internist, and um, you see people with diabetes every now and then, I suspect. So what about in this setting using semaglut, uh, one of the uh, glucagon agonists? Uh, 
What do, you, what do you say here in this setting? Yeah, so absolutely. I forget the, the stem of whether she had diabetes. Was, was that the we did, I didn't say. Yeah, so in a patient that has diabetes, considering um, weight-negative drugs in, in combination could also be helpful if she's really well-controlled in this regimen and wants to stay on it, and she might meet criteria for something like Ozempic, then um, that's something that might be able to counterbalance some of the negative effects of the weight gain in, the, in, this, in this drug. Yeah, so right now... Uh, that medication is indicated for people with type 2 diabetes, and it works well, and it's associated with up to 20 to 25% weight loss. Yeah. It's Pretty amazing. You talk about suppressing appetite. You put that with TDF, and they lose 75% of their weight. <laughs> I made that up. Disappear. I made that up. Don't it's actually me. now indicated for weight loss. Also. It is, yeah. yeah it has a separate indication. indication. Weight, weight right. Be. right. I, we go, semaglutide. We're supposed to use. In this oh, case, sorry, you can't. You have, well, you, well, in this case, you kind of have to use... Um, trade names because the Govi is different, and, and Ozempic is yeah. not. So yeah. even though they're the same drug, which is a little confusing. One advertises although, more than the other. But. Although uh, obviously insurers can choose to cover it when you're using it for diabetes and not cover right, it, sure. cover it yeah. when you're using it for yeah. obesity. And, and I problem. just want to add that I can get uh, Ozempic covered for pre-diabetes also. Mm -hmm. um, Medicaid, so I am checking A1C or, or fasting glucose and everybody to try to get right. them a pre-diabetes diagnosis. Um, and then we can start. And then, uh, but Medicaid will not pay up for it, at least in Louisiana, for weight loss because that's considered a cosmetic right. problem. Well, I've, I've heard people <laughs> say... How many people have heard that? I've heard people say that if you go to the pharmacy to pick it up and you hum the song from the commercial, that you get your copay with. Can, can I? I've heard people say that. Can can I can I add something? Um, yeah. that, and plug Croy. Um, Croy is now open access, so yes. that's really important. And there is a terrific uh, Wednesday afternoon symposia that includes a, a beautiful discussion of weight gain yeah. by um, Patrick. Donald, maybe? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, or Donald O'Shea, Donald right? O'Shea. Donald, Donald O'Shea, O'Shea right. Um, who's Irish and has a beautiful accent, so it's fun to listen to. But he really, really hits the, nammer on the hammer on, nail on the head. Sorry. With, with this, this, the point about, yeah, you can manipulate antivirals and lose two kilograms, but if someone is truly at risk and obese, we, we have to do other things. It's a really, really great talk. Right. Um, uh, so I, I would plug that. Okay, so let's move on to um, a, a woman who was newly diagnosed, came in, was six weeks pregnant, and got a routine HIV test, and lo and behold, was discovered to have HIV. Um, labs are normal, B57 is negative. I'm not sure if we're doing that anymore, but in this case it was. Wild-type virus, first pregnancy, okay to start therapy. Which is your regimen of choice in today's world right now? Um, this is an answer that's changed pretty dramatically in the last three to four years. So let's go ahead and vote and see what our song is. Uh, yeah. Follow my lead. You will see. What's the most popular answer? All right. There we go. Interesting. Kristen Chinowith says, TAF, FTC, Dalutegravir. Now, 
Two years ago. Most race, though. This is still going on here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, people are, that, that's called, I saw somebody else voted for that, so I'm going to vote for that. Oh, is that what that's happening? Oh, so. oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. Oh, See? Ooh, yeah. Ooh. It's like a horse race. Yeah, I like yeah. it. It's yeah. like you're coming to the finish line. Long answer. Okay. So uh, this is one that, ooh, half FTC BIC. Let's talk about what the panel <laughs> do here. Mm. All right, that's, that sort of damned that one, didn't I? Okay. Uh, Dr. Del Rio, you want to take a shot at this? Well, as you said, this has changed dramatically. And, you know, uh, we all know about the Dolly Tegrever data that came out, uh, you know, from Timpano's study looking at, you know, the, the risk of, of neural tube defects, uh, later data, Later analysis suggested that that wasn't indeed the case. I mean, it was really interesting to see that dramatic change. I think most people today would, would say dolutegravir, you know, is is the is the drug initially that you would start. And the question is whether you do it with TAF or, or TDF. But at the end of the day, you know, the data from uh, from several studies suggests that you may have a little bit of, of greater risk of, of of you know complications of pregnancy such as premature birth or low birth weight with 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 TDF than with TAF. Uh, I would say the teledegravir regimens are appropriate. I think bictegravir is probably also fine, but my recommendation on bictegravir would be if somebody's getting, is, is on bictegravir to, I mean, then, then becomes pregnant, you don't need to change it, but I'm not sure it would necessarily be the one that you would start initially in pregnancy. Uh, I think it's really important to, to mention, and I'm glad it, it didn't appear at all, that cobicistat you know, drugs are not recommended. Yeah, so I'm, glad a- that, I'm glad that dropped to the bottom. And you know, uh, you know, if Avarin's TDF FTC was something that we used for many years, and that was uh, what typically was was uh, was being used in pregnant women, but I'm, I'm glad to see that that's almost off the table now. And the data from from primarily again the global data is really important because most pregnant women with HIV are being treated in Africa, and the data with with TDL looks really good. Yeah. Other comments, thoughts? What have, you mentioned, Big Tegravir. So right now, the date we're in a bit of a data-free zone, slowly collecting. So I think the consensus is you wouldn't necessarily initiate it right. in this setting. But like I think you said, but if, but if, if you're on, if the patient's already on it and they, you discover that they're pregnant and they've been on Bictegravir, people generally are not switching correct. Um, and continuing on. And so far that seems to be successful. Um, so that's why, I mean, so I think starting it in this setting, not a whole lot of data to support. And the diategravir story is fascinating because it's just like a Favarin's was in 2003 or 2002. When, when it came out, it was associated with neural tube defects. And then they did larger studies and said, oh, wait a minute, it's not, it's not any different. Well, and well, that's if, a if Favarin's, if Favarin's, the data was primarily in, in non-human primates. Well, yeah, but they also saw it in, in, in children born. Uh, if, the, if the mom was on it pre six weeks, right, when the neural tube forms. And it's all about folate at the end of the day. That's the take-home point. And so if you have someone who's planning a pregnancy, put them on folate right away. And that way you protect against, in general, neural tube defects. So that's a good take-home point. Jeff, you were leaning forward? No? No. Okay. I would add there was a PK study with um, women um, at uh, Croy with Bictegravir, and there was a substantial... um, uh, decrease in bictegravir concentrations during pregnancy that then uh, 
return to predicted levels postpartum. That doesn't mean it won't work, but I would not use it as initial therapy in, in a, a pregnant woman. Right. I, I would I would be a little bit stronger than what Mike said. Right. I think it's fine if someone's suppressed and they're on Bictegravir-based therapy. It's fine, but I would not use it. And Dalutegravir-3-TC, kind of the same story, yeah, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. As you too. get towards third trimester. And so... Generally speaking, TAF, which a year and a half ago we would say don't use, now there's studies that show that it actually did better in a way. So that, so it's a TAF, FTC, Dalutegravir is kind of emerging for de novo treatment like this case. Um, and that's one of the questions that I think you saw before on that pretest that 91% of people didn't have success. So you can improve your success. 61% of you got that particular question correct. So now it'll be 100%, because we just talked about it, right? Dalutegravir, TAF, FTC. And why did the TAF people, women, pregnant women, women who were pregnant, people who were pregnant, why did they do better? What was the correlate? Tell me. They did what? They gained weight. Weight. Yes. (laughs) Boom. Because it's good for you when you're pregnant. So this is a summary I pulled from Raj Gandhi in that uh, SEPAMO study. Uh, the neural tube defect data is reassuring. And uh, this is another study. This is the pe- study where, where birth outcomes were improved mm-hmm. with um, uh, TAF over TDF. Right. Okay, so more data helpful clarifying. Now, what do we do with the patient who has persistently detectable viremia? A lot of us have those folks, but I'm guessing up to 20% maybe of our patients. So this is a case of a 55-year-old guy who's diagnosed quite a while ago, the baseline HIV RNA was high, almost a million, CD4 count was low. The current, uh, now 18 years later, HIV RNA is 85, but it's usually hovering definitely above 50, but usually less than 100 forever. Um, CD4 count has not come up now nicely on a lot of different regimens, but currently is on dalutegravir, boosted darunavir, and 3TC, it doesn't have any resistance data available. So are you going to change this regimen to something simpler now? Yes or no or not sure? Go ahead and vote. (laughs) Dietegravir, boosted darunavir, 3TC. So taking three different pills. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right. Uh, Once a day Okay, so most people would stay the course. Um, how about the panel? You know, I would feel a lot more comfortable now changing them based on the data that's come out of Africa as part of the ro- rollout of tenofovir, lamivudine, dolutegravir, that people with very significant nucleoside resistance did just fine, even though you would have been worried about both tenofovir and 3TC you know, as long as you had the dolutegravir in the combination, they had really good rates of, of suppression. So I would feel comfortable switching them to a simpler regimen. Yeah, but you're not switching them necessarily because the viral load's detectable. No. Okay. No. I, I, as far as but viral, it's just on a complicated yeah. regimen. It is complicated. Yeah. As, far as, as, far as far as so viral, that's a reason to switch. But how many would as far anybody as viral, switch as far because of viral load? load I, would ignore, I would ignore that. The problem is you have to ignore it and talk to the patient and try to explain right. to them that neither you you don't need to freak and the patient doesn't need to freak out for you know viral loads. I would say under, I mean this guy was 85. 
I mean, once they get above 200, you start worrying. Yeah. But as long as they're under 200, you know, it's, 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 it's okay. Yeah. Dr. Geppert, you were going to say something. I mean, the reason it's okay is they've done a fair number of studies that this is sort of a large viral reservoir, and the, I guess Dr. Sachs can talk about it. So stay there at the microphone while we go through this and get your comment. Hmm. Uh, so this is a pathogenesis-type slide. And you'll notice that in the lower right-hand side, all antiretroviral therapy does is prevent uninfected cells from becoming infected, full stop. That's all it does. But if you look at the upper right-hand portion, the latently infective reservoir that just sort of is hanging out there, um, the antiretroviral therapy does nothing to. It, it still persists. And there's a direct correlation to the original baseline viral load, in this case is about a million, to the residual reservoir. So larger reservoir. So these cells can spit out virus periodically that can become detectable in the plasma when you do your test, but it, there's no evidence at all of residual replication. So, um, and, and furthermore, how many intensification studies have we done, Joe? That are over yeah, we've done, <laughs> I, we ended up doing one, I think, in 1994, I think when Paul was a fellow. Uh, we added nevirapine to some other regimen just to intensify. It did nothing. Um, so these are uh, these are just basically data from. This is in essence from uh, Bob Silicano's lab. But the take-home point here is that when you have cellular proliferation without de novo replication, which is the top part, these cells in the bottom will just spit out virus periodically. And you don't see any emergence of resistance because there's no ongoing replication that's being stopped. Adding another drug doesn't help. Uh, and I think we just want to make that point. When the viral load goes above 100 consistently, I start to get a little concerned because usually it's below 100 uh, in this setting. So you want to watch that person carefully. And if it starts going up above 200, that means there's probably some ongoing replication you want to do something about. But, but then it isn't always there in the experience. You, t you see it over 100, and I agree with you. You tell the patient to come to get a genotype, but you talk to them about it here, and it's, you know, they take their pills better, then they come back, and they're undetectable. It's undetectable. It's amazing how that helps. Um, the so other this thing, is, you this can't get a genotype if it's a, if, unless it's above 500, right, which is right, a practical right. As issue. a rule. And right. then can I just mention one boring thing? So there was a Croy presentation on immuno immunology, which nobody cares about, but they looked at these persistently low viremic people versus people who were undetectable, and there was no difference in their immune response, which is really uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, hmm. it is interesting. So it probably is just the reservoir right. spitting. Yeah. Yes. Um, so this will go to Dr. Clement, because she's going to talk about this later, and this is a preview of coming attractions for us today. <laughs> So this is a 35-year-old guy. This is actually a case I saw probably eight months ago. And he's had HIV for 10 years, doing well, um, on Big TAF FTC. But he's coming back frequently, like frequently. Very, very frequently. <laughs> it's almost like I want to send him home with some uh, IM Rosefin that he just injects himself with. Um, but he, he has this, did I say it was frequent? Yes, it is. And so now, what are you gonna do? Um, just keep treating at each episode and tell them, you know, hey, you're, you're, I'm being judgmental, your, your number of partners is a little bit too high and not helpful. Um, 
offer amoxicillin after each encounter, some doxycycline, send him home with some suffixine. Who knows? Let's go ahead and vote. You didn't have an option of giving him a pack of condoms, did you? <laughs> yeah. You didn't have an option condoms. of giving him a pack of condoms, did you? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Good. Wow. So nobody went for the lower two. Dr. Clement, give us a preview of what you're about to show us later today. Yeah, so um, this is still somewhat controversial, and, and the CDC has not yet really come down one way or the other. They, As I'll show in my talk, they give some guidance and acknowledge data on the efficacy of doxy pep, so post-exposure prophylaxis, 200 milligrams of doxy after a sexual encounter. Um, but I do think this is a patient who really could benefit from doxy pep, um, avoiding frequent STIs and the possible uh, complications from those, um, and the, the frequent visits to the clinic. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good choice to really offer doxy pep here. I do think, as I'll talk about, there are pros and cons, and on a population level, I think we have to, to think seriously about um, what direction we're moving in. So a lot of folks would say, wait a minute, if this guy's having two encounters, three encounters a week, he's going to be taking doxy intermittently, consistently. What about resistance to doxy? What do you know about that? Um, we have very little data right now as far as gonorrhea. Um, the, I'll, I'll show in my slides the, the Staph aureus um, and Neisseria, uh, the commensal Neisseria data. Um, but in the DoxyPep study, there were actually only, I believe, 56 cases where um, we were able to get resistance data. And so it was really hard to, yeah. to draw any conclusions from that. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think time will tell. We need, we need larger real-world data. Right. You know, I, I have now several years of not doing the, I was a PI for the GISP study, which is a gonococcal isolate surveillance project here in Atlanta. And, but consistently in our country, the resistance to tetracycline, like doxycycline for gonococci right now is about five to eight percent. Now, it's very different than what it is in France. In Europe, it's about 60 percent. Uh, but it may be that if we start using a lot of doxy, I mean, one thing we know about GC it's really good at developing resistance really rapidly. So yeah. if we start using a lot of it, we may not see resistance, but I think we're going to start seeing an increase in resistance very rapidly. And that's why, and, and Meredith will talk about this, there's other strategies, and, and one of the strategies is using a, a meningococcal vaccine as a, as a possibility. In fact, Dr. Kelly, Colleen Kelly, will be starting a study here in town of, of doing a doxy uh, plus a meningococcal vaccine. So Dr. Del Rio just mentioned this, so it's the next question. Let's go ahead and vote. Would you give him the 4C meningococcal B vaccine just for grins and giggles? Go ahead and vote. I would, add, as an option, refer to Dr. Kelly's study at the Hope Clinic. <laughs> the, the Magi or something? So Dr. Yeah, Dr. Iran, who said he liked tick, tick, TikTok boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, which was about Jonathan Larson. Yeah, that last song came from Jonathan Larson from another play called Rent, which Dr. Gulick refers to as Rant. Um, <laughs> he like it. Oh, look at this. Dr. Del Rio, you could sell a bridge in Brooklyn, I think, if you wanted to. There. 
Yeah, so it's, it's reasonable data are emerging, right? Um, any further information on that? You'll be talking about the Magi. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll show that. a side too. Uh, I'll advertise New Orleans as a Magi site too for the Bixera study. Um, but I think a, lo a low risk intervention, right? right. With potential yeah, UAB benefit. as well. So if we're adding on about the yep. sites doing the study. So, so, be so a good many, many of our sites are going to be part of this Magi <laughs> study. So you'll be talking about the Magi. Yeah. So the return of the Magi. Uh, stop Abakavir. So we got a guy who's returning to you after four years in care. He'd been treated elsewhere. He's on. Abakavir 3TC, Dalyutegravir, doing well, um, just doing well. The smoker, um, and he's 62, he has no ne uh, negative cardiac history, he's already on a Torvastatin just because, and a low-dose aspirin just because. Um, would you keep him on Abakavir or not? That's kind of the question here. Um, go ahead and vote. Process this question very well, <laughs> but I think yeah. So this this play took place in Baltimore, right? Hairspray, you know this one? Yeah. All right. Joe Iron knew this one. All right. So most people would change. Um, what does the panel think, Joe? I, I think that anybody who can convince me of a patient who should stay on a back of ear for any reason. I'll give you all the money in my wallet. Which is a dollar fifty. It's well it's a little bit more than that, but usually it's about five dollars. But okay. I think I think I have a twenty in there. It's lunch but, money. But but it, but yeah, uh, no if, if you can if you, you can convince me uh, that I can't trump you. Um, uh, or whatever. sorry about that. <laughs> Some people are saying that. Okay. Other thoughts? I mean, I, th I think the most yeah, important well. thing, you put it on top, right, is you've got to get him to quit smoking. And yes, you can do your, you, you know, I agree with Joe, why does he need to be in the back of here? But really, the most important intervention, twisting antiretrovirals, if he doesn't quit smoking, is not going to really decrease his risk significantly. So this is a little bit like the case we talked about where there was a 3TC mutation, and you, you go and you kind of say, aren't there other options? And the answer is yes. Um, the data on Abakavir is mixed. Uh, in general, but um, the, the, the concern is that if somebody is currently on an abacavir regimen, that the cardiovascular risk is elevated a, a bit. But it's nothing compared to the risk from smoking in cardiovascular disease. So the reason I asked the question was to just kind of focus on the notion that, yeah, we can argue and dance on the head of a pin about abacavir, but the, the elephant on the pin is... Um, Smoking. So yeah, but you can yeah. fix the abacavir like immediately. Yeah. yeah. And and it's a you know it's a twofold risk. And if his ten percent, if his risk is ten percent, twofold is a lot. Right. Right. So I, I well I agree smoking is bad for you, um, and you should get people to stop. I, if you can fix, there's no reason to give someone something that's even potentially toxic. I mean, so when you have. So can I ask how how solid is that data now that abacavir is cardio bad? <laughs> I, I think the majority of observational data support approximately a twofold risk. I, I would say by far. Um, though, though there are other studies that there, you know, the VA has one on each side. Actually, if you like the VA, they have one that says yes and one that says no. But I think the majority of the observational data would suggest there's risk. 
Okay, so new skin lesions. 30-year-old guy presented back in <clears throat> September with new lesions on his buttocks, groin, back, face, febrile. Uh, had several different sexual partners over the four weeks previously. Um, he's off of antiretroviral therapy. He, his urine drug screen is positive for meth. So in addition to screening for STIs and MPOX culture, which else would you do? Treat for molluscum. Uh, start tocovermat. Uh, wait for cultures if positive, then start the medicine. Would not treat, it's not indicated. No specific treatment, just give the genius vaccine. Phone a friend. Listen to some Broadway music. This is Newsies, yes. So now you're supposed to get up and dance and do flips and stuff and dance on newspapers. Hmm. Oh. It was a movie first with Christian Bale and then turned into a musical. Really? Okay, so most people would start. Um, this is kind of an STI. Let's go to back to Dr. Clement. Um, yeah, I agree. I would, I would start as soon as possible. I, the CDC now given more and more data, urges you to be very vigilant in the setting of um, HIV infection with low CD4 count and elevated viral load. And we know just more and more data support that those folks have the worst outcomes. Um, and so going ahead and starting soon is, is what I would do in this situation. So in the United States, there were 57 deaths from MPOX, and almost all of them were HIV positive, not on antiretroviral therapy with low CD4 counts. So would you start antiretroviral therapy simultaneously or soon, or what would be your thought there? Tough question. Oh, that's a good question. I, we do, so Chloe Orkin in her presentation did describe cases of, of iris related mm -hmm. to MPOX. Um, I, I, as far as I know, this is a data-free zone. I don't think it would be unreasonable to wait a week or two, depending on the presentation right. that the patient has, I think. I don't think we know. No. Uh, I would lean towards treating earlier. We can manage the iris. Um, yeah. I, I would think time. about this, the study that we did, the ACG study of treating, starting antiretroviral therapy after an OI. I would think about this as an OI, and I would say let's start him on therapy within two weeks of the onset yeah. of OI. So it doesn't need to be immediately. You can start him on TPOX right now, and then within the next 14 days start antiretroviral therapy. Right. So this next one I'll, I'll pitch down the line here to Dr. Lennox because he spoke about bit about COVID when uh, his did a summary. So this is a 65-year-old patient of yours who has low-grade fever, cough, headache, and sore throat for two days. Uh, rapid COVID test is positive. I'm going to come back to Dr. Walker because she's going to talk about long-term consequences. Uh, rapid flu test is negative. Uh, Well-controlled HIV on dolutegravir and nigidine and also on resuvastatin, carbamazepine, rivaroxaban and uh, ardenafil. And oxygen saturation is down a bit. So two days into treatment, would you use Paxlovid, brand name? Would you give a monoclonal antibody? This is in today's world. This is in the last week or two. Um, Bebtilivimab. Uh, how about remdesivir as an outpatient? Molnupiravir. 
this new medicine that we heard about from Dr. Lennox, um, incitrelvir or no treatment? Go ahead and vote. Uh, yeah, they're vaccinated. Once. Once. <laughs> oh, that's Hades Town. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. This is a good play, actually. Okay. Um, so, what about PAX here? Maybe maybe I'll go to maybe I'll go to Meredith. Uh, I'll go to Tiffany first. Sorry, okay. Tiffany, Tiffany, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, yeah. So absolutely, I would treat this gentleman. I think Paxlovid is a, a reasonable choice. Uh, he's not critically ill. He definitely has risk factors. From a long COVID standpoint, we don't have data yet long term. There's some exploratory um, uh, endpoints that have been looked at in a couple studies to see if treating in the acute phase might prevent um, development of long COVID. There's some evidence to support that. We've seen, at least in um, observational studies, potentially um, remdesivir treatment has decreased the, the risk of developing long COVID. So both from an acute COVID standpoint. What, what are you going to do about the drug-drug interactions with rosuvastatin, carbamazepine, and rivaroxaban? Uh, that's a good point. That I had not no, I mean, I think I agree completely that it's optimal to use Paxlova, but it may not be possible. So moving back to the choices, uh, yeah. anything else you see here that you might go with? I mean, you could potentially do the remdesivir as an outpatient. Um, I think it would have less hepatotoxicity than the um, Paxlovid. Um, and uh, I think that the key being um, just trying to get the person treated as early as possible to pre prevent long-term. Yeah, it's a tough call. So Jeff, tell us if, if let's say this in um, in is now available. It's a PI, right? But it's not boosted. Right. But it's probably going to interact with some of these same things. So you're not a whole lot better off. What would you do here? Um, I was. Very concerned about the drug interactions, so I agree that, you know, the data would support using the outpatient remdesivir if you can actually arrange to give it. The monoclonal antibody combination is probably not going to work, uh, given the uh, circulating COVID. Um, and the inseltravir, if we had it, would probably work. Um, Molnupiravir is an option. It's not as good as Paxlovid in people who can get both. But if you can't get it, it does have antiviral activity, although it wasn't as impressive as the remdesivir and the uh, yeah. it's, it's This is a hard case, and I think we made most of the points. What we've been doing is trying to get the remdesivir outpatient, and we have it set up, but it takes effort. Uh, and it also means recurrent trips for at least three days back to an infusion center. The infusion is relatively straightforward. It's not a major deal. but the drug is an antiviral that works really well, and the drug interactions are few, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, Mondopiravir, um, okay, just not great. Carlos, you have a thought? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think the, the challenges the, the, with the infusions is at least the challenges we have here is many infusion centers don't want to bring somebody who, who's COVID positive. The infusion centers tend to be a cancer really center, hard. so it's, really it's a big issue, and if it's going to take you seven days to get it organized, 
I rather just, I, you miss your window of opportunity. So I rather just, I mean, I think Melnipiravir is not a yeah. bad option in somebody like him. And, and quite frankly, yeah. I think that the data from the panoramic studies and other studies, granted, it may not be good as, 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 as Paxlovid, but it's much better than nothing. Yeah. So, so I think I would, this is a patient that I would really feel very comfortable starting malnipiravir. He's 65, is not a reproductive age person. Yep. I mean, I think this is the right patient to start malnipiravir. Yeah, I mean, to me it's scary that his um, O2 stat is 94. That's not normal. I mean, maybe he's a smoker and has lung disease. I didn't, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, but that's not normal. So that would really make me nervous. I, I mean, I've certainly uh, managed people on a pixaban depends a little bit on the, the indication for for uh, anticoagulation. The resuvastatin I wouldn't worry about. So so I, I would I, I wouldn't give up immediately. I, I don't know. I, I've the, never looked up the, rivaroxaban, so I don't know. Maybe it has a bit worse. The carbamazepine is really the killer here. That's you know, the one Joe, that you can't dance around very. Joe, one thing we don't know about this patient, or maybe I missed it. I was also concerned about the O2 sat, but we don't know if he's Caucasian or African-American. And one yeah. thing that's surprising about the pandemic is how poorly quality checked these transcutaneous oxygen sensors are across a variety of skin tones in the United States. Yeah. It's well, just real, real, one, really sobering. One quick personal anecdote. If, I think a lot of you know that I had COVID back in March 13th. It was a Friday the 13th, 2020, before we knew a whole lot. And I had a pulse ox at home, and invariably at night at 2 a.m., my pulse ox would drop, and I'd just start trying different fingers until I found one that gave me a better number. And that, that tended to work. It was very therapeutic. So you can try that at home if you ever get COVID. Um, the the take-home point here is that none of the monoclonals work because we've evolved into an Omicron uh, abyss. And... They weren't designed. Now, why the companies aren't developing Omicron-specific monoclonals, which isn't a terribly tough technology question, I think it's a marketing issue, and I wish somebody would do that. Um, they certainly would be used. Um, final question here. A guy uh, transfers to the clinic who's got HIV and frequent meth use and not been on therapy for over three years. You don't have any data. Um, you know that just on his report, uh, he's been on indenivir and bacavir and lupinavir and AZT in the past and um, was recently on dolutegravir-ropivirine the last time uh, but, and it had success. And now um, it was hospitalized, uh, TAF-FTC was added, so on this crazy regimen, um, you, you get um, data from a darunavir cobi 3 tc dolutegravir, and the viral load um, came down a little bit but didn't go to less than 100. So you're sitting here treading water um, wondering what's going to happen with this regimen. And this is some kind of crazy phenotype that doesn't look too good. <laughs> and, um, and, and it also looks bad for all the, uh, for all the uh, integrase inhibitors. Yeah. And, and has multiple mutations. And that's just to remind you that those are bad, evil. Mike, what, what is the person on now, though? I got mixed up. Um... He's on, he's on dolutegravir, darunavir, TAF-FTC, and okay. And the dolutegravir is twice a day. Yeah. Uh, darunavir boosted, uh, F 3-TC and, and, and twice daily uh, dolutegravir. But it's not working. So this will come to you, Joe, because... Um, you talked about some of this. 
So one of the, I'll just let you look at them for a second. There's a, there's a maturation inhibitor, um, the FOSS, and different things. And so let's go ahead and vote. A lot of people went with your sort of drug du jour in your talk, linacapavir. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, the only thing I would say is this is super difficult, right? And I, and I didn't see the protease mutation. It was um, a 10 and a whole yeah, bunch of Yeah, them. okay. That, yeah, I didn't, yeah. Uh, you know, because I don't know what the Dermavir Kobe is doing in this setting. But I would probably also give the person FOS, uh, Temzavir, and linacapavir. Um, uh, because the dalyotegravir is going may have some activity in that setting, but not much at all. Um, and um, the, if if there are multiple darunavir mutations, I, I didn't see it's going to have min, kind of very modest activity. So I would be really worried about this person completely running out of options. He's already on twice daily dalyotegravir, which I wouldn't stop. So I would I would give I would give lemoncapavir 100 um, percent, but I would probably also give fostemzavir. What about ibolizumab? Um, I, I don't think I don't know that there's any advantage to ibolizumab over fostemzavir, and fostemzavir is oral. It's, it is twice daily, but it's well tolerated. So I, I don't I don't I don't I don't see where I would pull that out. And I think this is exactly the situation where lemoncapavir is useful. And yeah. if you look at the data from Croy at um, you know, the subsetting data that, that lenacapavir, when given with fostemzavir, actually had, I think, the highest um, suppression rate in this setting. So, so I would give both. And, yeah. and I would wonder whether the darunavir cobe that is doing anything. But, right. but I would need to look at the mutations so really carefully. I think the take-home point here is that there's good news and bad news. The good news is that this is rare. Yeah, I mean, right. the number of cases we see like this, you can count on maybe one hand over the last three to four years in our clinics, and that's remarkable. Um, the bad news is that if this regimen fails, whatever you switch to, um, he's kind of toast. Yeah. And he, just not, not good. And the sad thing is that probably a way that he ended up getting in the position where he's got multidrug-resistant virus is in adherence, and you got twice-daily drugs that we're giving him, and that's the hardest to comply with. So it's a mess. Um, these are data from the Scenics that uh, a lot of people, uh, Joe and others on the panel, have participated in. And uh, the actual number of people that have limited treatment options, meaning less than two drugs, uh, that are active is vanishingly small in the current era. And what's even more remarkable in that analysis, even those who had limited treatment options, which is the red line, you can see that as the integrase inhibitors came on the scene, they did as well virologically as those without limited treatment options, which I thought was amazing. So in conclusion, we're going to wrap up. 
uh, antiretroviral therapy should be initiated in general with the integrated strand transfer inhibitor um, as close to the time of diagnosis as possible, weight gains associated with this, um, and the weight gain may be reversed a little bit with TDF. Um, Dolutegravir and TAF are drugs of choice in pregnancy these days, and I'd advocate giving folate as much as you can. Um, simplification of regimens is doable. Some points we made it made out. Uh, we talked about episodic doxycycline. We're going to hear more about that from uh, Meredith uh, in a little bit. And um, watch for drug-drug interactions when you're using SARS-CoV-2 uh, things and the variants are making monoclonal antibodies uh, ineffective. So a lot that we covered. Uh, Appreciate your hanging in there with us. There was a comment that uh, while we're doing these cases, especially but during the talks, if you can keep uh, comments between yourselves to a little bit to a minimum because it's interfering with some folks' ability to hear. And I think we'll wrap up here. We've got lunch uh, for about an hour. We'll come back right at the top of the hour at 1 o'clock. Thanks to the panel for a great job. Thanks for all you guys for hanging in there with us.